If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 223 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Dr. Chris Deedy. Chris is a professor in learning technologies at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, and that's one of those job titles I think I envy automatically. Salisa, what do you and Chris talk about? We talk about unlearning, virtual reality, augmented reality, personalization, AI, and IA, as intelligence augmentation. But where we really focus is on the 60-year curriculum, which is a new way of thinking about higher education, not as a discrete four years of a traditional undergraduate degree, but really stretching over the approximately six decades that today's college students are expected to work during their life. As the job market has gotten more turbulent, workers changing jobs, even careers more frequently, and as lifespans are lengthening, the need to continue to learn after finishing a traditional degree is more acute than ever. Well, that's something we've certainly talked about quite a bit, uh, and we use the concept the other 50 years. And of course, we've pointed to the role that learning businesses are and can play in that time period. Well, absolutely. And and the 60-year curriculum is in the same vein, but it focuses on how higher ed institutions can provide formal education courses and programs. Dr. Gary Matkin, Dean of the Division of Continuing Education and Vice Provost of the Division of Career Pathways at the University of California at Irvine, he's credited with coining the term the 60-year curriculum, and he describes it as the organizing principle behind a lot of different trends in higher education, including the trend of being more accountable and very relevant to the workforce needs of a particular region. And I'll note, too, that the 60-year curriculum is, at least at this point, conceptual and evolving and not really a a concrete locked-down program. Well, I do like those words, accountable and relevant, something we uh, certainly should all be striving for as learning providers. So what reflection questions will listeners find in the show notes for this episode at, of course, leadinglearning.com slash episode 223? I have two to offer. So first... What threats does the 60-year curriculum pose to your learning business? Because in many ways, the 60-year curriculum is about higher ed trying to remain relevant longer for learners and thereby probably inevitably competing with learning businesses. And then second, what opportunities does the 60-year curriculum open up for your learning business? Chris shares some ideas that might spark your thinking about how your learning business might fit in. Well, it's definitely good to consider both the challenges and the opportunities in almost any situation. So keep both in mind as you listen to this conversation with Chris Eady. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today I'm joined by Dr. Chris Deedy, Professor in Learning Technologies at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Chris has a fundamental interest in developing new types of educational systems to meet the opportunities and challenges of the 21st century. He's also a central player in an initiative centered on the 60-year curriculum, which looks to tackle head-on those learning opportunities and challenges of the 21st century. And we'll definitely be talking more about the 60-year curriculum, but right now I want to say, Chris, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
So obviously, I just talked very briefly about your main area of interest. What else would you highlight for listeners about yourself and your work so they can have that in mind as background? Well, I will be highlighting some things as we go through the questions. One of my areas of expertise is scaling up complex innovations, which doesn't happen very often in education. So that's something that I I would want to say. The other is that I do a lot of thinking about mobile learning. And of course, when you're talking about lifelong learning, often people have little bits and pieces of time and their mobile device is going to be the vehicle that they use to access that. Well, great. Definitely of interest, the scaling up complex innovations. That sounds like an amazing uh, area to have expertise and experience in. And then, of course, yeah, mobile learning, which is seems to only be growing in in importance. So it was the 60-year curriculum that first brought your name to my attention. So maybe let's start there. What is the 60-year curriculum and, and what sparked the initiative? So this is an initiative that comes out of the field of continuing education, but it draws on a long history of people interested in lifelong learning, people thinking about distance education, online learning. It it draws from multiple roots. And Gary Matlin at UC Irvine coined the term, the 60-year curriculum. The fundamental idea is that the next generation is going to live into their 90s or beyond. And um, people start to think about their first job in mid-adolescence, around age 15. So those students will probably have to work to age 75 if they're going to live into their 90s or over a century. And that's six decades, six decades from age 15 to age 75. So that's where the 60 years comes from. Now, in education, we think about pipelines. So we think about K-12 or we think about um, higher ed or maybe even K-20 But this is a little different because it's really thinking about 15 to 75 as a lifelong learning pipeline in which you're not doing what we do in education now, which is to spend 95% of the effort to prepare people for their first job as if it was going to be their only job and their only career. Instead, this is focusing on preparing people to have a lifelong series of careers perhaps five to seven careers, some of which don't exist yet. So we're talking about a way over six decades to think about continuous upskilling and a lot of flexibility in how you think about yourself and how you define yourself, perhaps more as a suite of skills than as a narrow kind of a job role. Well, that's wonderful background and uh, on the initiative. And, and so maybe now you can tell us where, where things stand with the 60-year curriculum, you know, what's been happening with it, and, and maybe even some of the challenges um, that you've encountered in, in moving things forward. Well, one of, the, one of the things in terms of the 60-year curriculum is that there's an amazing amount of interest in it. Uh, I've um, co-edited a book on the 60-year curriculum that will be out next year. And in the course of writing the introductory chapter, I synthesized a whole set of reports that had come out really in the last three or four years from a wide variety of global organizations. 
And all the reports say pretty much the same thing. They say that we're coming into a half century in the future in which the past is not a good guide to what's going to happen uh, for many reasons, globalization, failure to meet the UN's sustainability goals, the advance of artificial intelligence and biotechnology and nanotechnology, climate change. It's going to be a very challenging time, but also a time of great opportunity. And so people are saying, we've got to prepare the next generation of students for this half century of economic turbulence and disruption in which they're going to be the engine of innovation that brings us through all of these challenges. And to do that, they're going to need not just to be well prepared for their first job, but to have a whole set of dispositions, being open-minded and flexible, being able to listen to other people with understanding and empathy, loving to learn and wanting to continue learning, being very resilient and, and willing to face uncertainty and challenge. It actually reminds me of a book that Tom Peters did years ago called Thriving on Chaos. We're looking at trying to prepare a generation or two that can really thrive on the chaos of this unusual half century. And continuing education is the group, I think, that has taken those reports most into account and worked to respond to them. And in the co-edited book that my colleague John Richards and I have done, uh, we have case studies of a number of different uh, universities whose continuing education groups are really taking the lead. And those include Harvard and its Division of Continuing Education with Dean Huntington Lambert, who's been a real leader in the whole movement and who brought me into this, but also Georgia Tech, Arizona State University, Columbia University, and globally, the University of Newcastle in Australia, University of Washington. I mentioned UC Irvine, where the term originated. So there's a lot of momentum that's building both within continuing education as these different groups are sharing what they're doing and getting a strong response from students. And outside of continuing education, where all these groups are recognizing that the most important thing in getting us through the next 50 years is going to be preparing a group of students who really are going to thrive on having five to seven careers. Well, and so you've mentioned some of the, the groups that are um, actively engaged with the 60-year curriculum, Harvard, Newcastle, Georgia Tech, all those others that you just mentioned. Maybe you could um, share a, an example or, or two of what some of those um, organizations are doing that sort of speaks to the 60-year curriculum. Sure, and I'll, I'll, I'll give an answer that isn't Harvard because I don't want to just <laughs> blow our own horn. So Georgia Tech... Um, came out with a report of its own, a very influential report about lifetime learning and how Georgia Tech was going to work with its alumni um, so that they would um, be able over the entire course of their lifetimes to continue learning. Uh, they also have been very innovative in online education and the master's degree that they have in computer science mm. online is far less expensive than the uh, on-campus computer science masters. 
and and yet um, of high quality. And it's attracted uh, a large number of graduates and been sort of a proof of concept for the field about what might be possible. Arizona State University, which is noted for innovation and higher education in general, uh, has reached out to major employers like Starbucks and created situations in which students, uh, as part of their work life, can earn different kinds of certifications and degrees. And in particular, Arizona State is focusing on students who traditionally have not graduated from higher education. They're looking at expanding the talent pool because we're going to need every scrap of um, human innovation that we can find in order to face this difficult future that, that we're staring down the barrel of. So those are just a couple examples, and, and the book itself will do case studies showing how each of these places is involved in this initiative. Well, great. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit about um, what's going on in, in some of these uh, organizations, because I think that's helpful to, to help listeners begin to kind of understand what the 60-year curriculum might look like in action. And as you've said, it's sort of been continuing education where this initiative sort of started and, and where it came out of. But I'm wondering about the other entities that serve lifelong learners. And I'm thinking in particular of our, our listeners who represent things like professional associations, trade associations, uh, training companies that serve individual learners, continuing ed divisions uh, included, and also solo entrepreneurs. And so I'm just Curious to get your thoughts on what you see as the role of, of other organizations in an initiative like the 60-year curriculum. Um, I believe that the 60-year curriculum will succeed or fail based on how, how well we integrate a whole variety of stakeholders beyond higher education in, in making this happen. Because many of the things that are important in achieving the 60-year curriculum just are not a good fit for how higher education has operated to this point. For example, um, higher education is used to large chunks of um, accomplishments being assessed. And so you get a degree or you get some kind of a major certification but in fact, for lifelong learning, you need things that are much smaller demonstrations of competencies for which you get some kind of warrant and transferable so that they're widely accepted. These certificates are widely accepted by different kinds of organizations. And that, that is really happening much more outside of higher education through groups like Credly than it is inside of higher education. Another thing that higher education hasn't done well historically is to provide sort of life coaching for students, not just coaching on, okay, here's the job you want, here's how you go about getting it, but thinking about that whole 60-year pipeline and helping somebody understand how they might evolve through a series of careers as part of that. There's an analogy to financial managers. Many people have a financial manager who is not someone that, that is like a bank uh, that has a stake in the advice that, that they're being given. It's someone independent of the kind of investments they might make 
that just is giving you advice with you as their sole client, with their, your advocate. And in the same way, I think that we're going to be looking at the need for career coaches, multiple career coaches in a way that doesn't exist right now. And in a way that's frankly not likely to come out of university. I think that, uh, as I sketched earlier, there are dispositions that people are going to need, resilience and tenacity and um, empathy, uh, the ability to um, work well with others that, that haven't necessarily been the focus of courses in higher education. And providing learning experiences of those types to complement academic courses, I think is another kind of opportunity for other stakeholders. Um, how, how people are going to pay for this is an interesting puzzle. Um, we now have unemployment insurance, which means that if you lose your job, you have some money to try to find another job just like it. But when we see, for example, a whole group of auto workers lose their job, they're, they're never going to be auto workers again, not in this country. Um, but they might be very good vocational high school teachers if, if they were able to upskill to get ready for that. So people, some politicians are talking about shifting from unemployment insurance to something like unemployability insurance, in which you get insurance to help you keep upskilling so that you always have multiple career options available to you. Other countries use what they call lifelong learning vouchers, where you have a certain amount of money from society as an investment, and you can use that money across your lifespan to continue upskilling and, and developing your capacity. So there's a lot of things that have to happen outside of higher education in a way that can be integrated or partnered with higher education in order for this to succeed. And I think that opens up a lot of opportunities for individuals, for businesses, for nonprofits, <clears throat> for policymakers to become a part of this initiative. Well, that's great. Thank you for for laying that out, some of those opportunities where others will need to be involved if the 60-year curriculum is, is going to be successful. Because as you said, sort of the success depends on sort of that buy-in outside of, of higher education. So, so far we focused on the 60-year curriculum, but I know that's just one project and, and one interest of many for you. So let's shift topics a bit and Talk about unlearning, which I've seen crop up in your writings. And so first, maybe you can um, share what you mean by unlearning and then talk about its role in serving lifelong learners. So unlearning is really about overcoming the dead hand of the past, shaping our future as individuals and as organizations. Because frequently we have a vision of, of how we might want to change as an individual or an organization. But people find that they just can't do it. They, they want to do it. They know what to do, but they're not able to do it. And I see this all the time. I see professors who are expert lecturers 
and who have a professional identity based around that, really struggling to shift to active collaborative learning by students, <clears throat> where they shift from being the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. I see universities that know that the big coming market is lifelong learning. And the degrees is, is not the way that we're going to meet that demand, but they really have trouble shifting from degrees that are certified by seat time and standardized tests to some kind of credentials that are certified by proficiency and competency and disconnected from how much time is involved. So unlearning says that if there's previous thinking that's getting in the way of your acting in a new way, and that previous thinking is part of your identity, then um, it, you have to unlearn that thinking and that identity before you just transform to some new way of doing or being. Because there's a lot of sort of rational approaches to change in individuals, organizations that just assume that really it, it's just thinking. It's just processing information. And once you know what you should do, then, then you just go ahead and do it. But what we find is that there are huge emotional barriers and um, concerns about how others perceive you that stand in the way of that. So um, with help from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, I co-hosted with Richard Clark at the University of Southern California, a invitational workshop on unlearning a couple of years ago. And in particular, we looked at immersion, virtual reality, mixed reality, as a lever for unlearning because your identity is created through experiences. And so one way of trying to help you shift your identity is to provide experiences with the new identity. Uh, one of the people who participated was an expert in using virtual reality to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, for example in which your identity has become shaped by something that, that you want to alter and virtual reality can be used to help with some of that. This past summer, I did with a postdoctoral fellow here at Harvard, some studies on empathy in which we used virtual reality as a way of wearing somebody else's shoes and helping people to understand what it might feel like to be that person. And, and then their own identity hopefully expands. So unlearning, I think, is a big part of, of this idea of preparing for multiple careers because you can't just think of yourself as a role. If, if I think of myself as a role, if I think of myself as a faculty member, then if my job disappears, I've got to go find another faculty job. But if I think of myself as a suite of skills, if I think of myself as somebody that's good at explaining complicated things to other people, that's good at mentoring people, listening carefully to them, empathizing with them, helping them to reach their goals, 
somebody that's had a lot of global experience and can operate effectively cross-culturally. That suite of skills suggests a much wider range of possible jobs than the narrow role. And some of the unlearning challenge, I think, is helping people to understand how to see themselves in terms of skills and, and define themselves that way, rather than defining themselves in a particular label of a role. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, this idea of um, trying to help the learner think more broadly and that uh, thinking kind of beyond that job role. And I, and I think it's interesting, too, because when I think about some of our listeners that are supporting people in a particular profession, so they're somewhat invested in that job title or maybe even in, you know, somewhat invested in that more narrow definition of the learner because they feel like they can speak um, they can provide value in that area and helping with that. And so I do see the, the impact both for the learner, but also the organization serving the learner to, to kind of do some of that um, rethinking about what it, what it means and who they're serving, um, which, is, which is fascinating. You know, I have um, advisees, of course, as a professor, master's students, and they'll come to me and they'll, they'll be very troubled and they'll say, part of me really wants to be a designer and part of me really wants to be a researcher. And I just don't know what I should do. And I say, well, you're going to be both. And you'll probably be a few other things that neither you nor I know about. So what you need to ask is what you're going to do first as a foundation for the next thing. And employers need to think the same way. If you got two people and, and one person just wants to be a designer and the other person wants to be a designer, but they also want to be a researcher, you're, you're better off with the second person, other things being equal, because you've got somebody there that's going to grow and evolve and shift their identity in ways that can be very helpful for you. Mm, that's an excellent point. I like that idea of it's, it's not an either or, it's going to be kind of which first and which second, um, or which is primary and, and then which ones follow on. So one of the things too that what you were just saying brought up is some of these learning technologies that, that I know you're uh, involved in and passionate about. You were talking about immersion and, and some of the, the virtual reality. And you began to touch on this in terms of talking about like empathy and, and how... Um, uh, immersion technologies can can help with that, but I'm curious to know, kind of big picture, what do you see as some of the the primary affordances of digital learning? Maybe empathy being one of them, and and then what do you see as the the main challenges uh, in using technology for learning? I was asked a few years ago to write a handbook chapter for the uh, handbook of research on teaching. Uh, and the chapter was to be about technology and teaching. And I was fortunate to get a colleague, Barry Fishman, from the University of Michigan to write the chapter with me. And one of the things we highlighted is that you can use technology to do things better, or you can use technology to do better things. Mm -hmm. That is, you can use technology to automate industrial era schooling to make it faster, to make it cheaper, to make it larger, or you can use perhaps the same technologies in a different way to prepare students for something like a half century in which the future is going to be very different than the past. And 
we're developing all the things that we've talked about with the 60-year curriculum. And I think we're moving into a time where the, the right investments with technology and the right ways to make money off of technology involve doing things better rather than, I'm sorry, doing better things rather than doing things better. Because automating what we have is, is sort of solving the wrong problem. We see this a lot with artificial intelligence. One of the big themes in the reports that was described was how artificial intelligence is going to be taking over parts of jobs. There's relatively few jobs that will be done completely by AI, but there's a lot of jobs in which AI will take up part of the role and therefore fewer people will be required to do the same amount of work. A shift in the division of labor, like John Henry and the steam engine. But you can also look at AI as a means of doing what's called intelligence augmentation, where the person and the machine working together, the tool does the simpler parts of the job, but then the person, if they're creative, if they have initiative, if they're flexible in their thinking, the person can do whole new things that have never been part of that job before because they have the AI as a partner. And that's where the opportunity comes from in the future. That's the upside of the 60-year curriculum is using this artificial intelligence not to replace human thinking, but to complement human thinking. So in the chapter, we talk about different technologies that we think are going to be particularly important in the future. One of those is collaboration tools, because so solving these huge challenges in the future is going to involve teams of people with different backgrounds and skills. One of them is online and, and blended educational environments because reaching across distance and time is very important in terms of lifelong learning. Um, tools that support learners as makers and creators, tools that build design skills of different kinds like maker spaces are really going to be important. I talked about immersive interfaces earlier uh, VR is a way to help people develop empathy or, or to unlearn different types of things. Much of my own research centers on ways of using virtual, mixed, and augmented realities. And I co-edited a book on that topic a couple of years ago. And then finally, um, personalization mm -hmm. through technology is a really important theme. Too much of education is one size fits all. And you get the people in the middle, but you lose everyone around the edges. And there's a recent book that um, I co-edited is co about something called learning engineering. But really what it is, is it's engineering learning. So using the streams of data that come out of our online learning environments to personalize, to understand the unique things about each learner and then craft their learning environment accordingly. And there's exciting things beginning to happen on the frontier of learning engineering. So far from it being a time when we kind of know what to do with educational technology and all of the tools are mature, 
it's a time of incredible opportunities for innovation with artificial intelligence, collaboration tools, uh, learning engineering and online learning, uh, maker spaces and different kinds of design creation things, virtual reality and simulations. It, and I, I just, my students and I just have a wonderful time thinking about all the ways to realize these visions. And so you've just pointed out that now is a time that's very ripe for innovation given where we are. And so I'm curious when you think kind of big picture about what's on the horizon for learning and learning technologies in the near future, I'm thinking like, you know, five years out or so, you know, what most excites you? And maybe it's something you've already touched on, or maybe it's something we haven't yet had the chance to discuss. I think that that the personalization through learning engineering really excites me. Um, My colleagues and I have uh, developed a series of pre-college curricula for learning ecosystem science that use immersive interfaces. So you become a virtual person in a digital ecosystem and have the opportunity to wear the shoes of the scientist and explore it. And one of my doctoral students, Joe Riley, is now doing his dissertation on taking the streams of data that come out of that curriculum and finding ways to diagnostically track where each student is as they interact with the world and then what kinds of supports they need to help them get to the next point. So we now have the capability through a combination of rich media that evoke a lot of complex performances and learning analytics that help us to understand how to engineer good ways to to tailor education to individuals. That's a tremendous opportunity that's coming. And I'm also very excited about uh, virtual and mixed realities and immersive learning. Uh, Full disclosure, I am an advisor to a company called Immersion. And Immersion is uh, the Wizard of Oz. You're interacting with digital people, but the digital people are played by a puppeteer behind the scenes in the same way that the Wizard of Oz has a man behind the screens uh, portraying the wizard. And there's an enormous number of very interesting things that can happen when you have a skilled human being creating an experience where someone's interacting with students or interacting with employees or interacting with customers in terms of crafting their learning. So immersive learning and uh, engineering learning to personalization are two big things that I talk a lot about with my students. Well, great. Those both sound like very important uh, areas where continued breakthroughs will, will really improve the quality of learning that's happening And so with that, I'm going to switch to um, our next to last question. It's one we ask of all guests on the Leaving Learning Podcast, and it focuses on your own learning. And the question is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing up your formal education? I would say, and this is going to sound a little strange, I would say that teaching has been one of my most powerful methods of learning that I've been teaching now for more than four decades in different kinds of university settings. 
And I'm still learning how to teach, not because I'm a slow learner, <laughs> but because the content keeps changing and the students keep changing and the desired outcomes keep changing and the technologies that I can use keep changing. And it's a fascinating journey. Um, a really, um, this fall, every fall, I teach a course called Transforming Education Through Emerging Technologies. And this fall, we use the 60-year curriculum as kind of a through line for the course. And we've just finished nine weeks of the students sort of working their way through the systemic view that I've garnered about education over the more than four decades of being involved. And then thinking about how to apply it to their future and how they might want to spend part of the next 50 years. And it's just been a wonderful learning experience for, for them and for me. And they give me a lot of hope when I, when I work with these students and they're so full of energy and promise and wanting to make a big difference in the world. I'm, I'm a little daunted when I read the reports about the challenges that are coming, but then I feel optimistic when I work with my students and I see all of the capability and energy and commitment that they're bringing to this. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that, uh, you know, answering um, what have you learned most from to say teaching does perhaps sound oxymoronic, but, you know, I, we know too that People say, if you want to learn something, teach it, <laughs> because you absolutely really got to do that. Well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing all of your thoughts and ideas today, Chris. And so, final question, if, if listeners want to learn more about you and, and your work or connect with you, where would you have them go? Well, I'm blessed with having a relatively unusual name. There aren't a lot of Chris and Dee's floating around, and so if you type that into a search engine, uh, most of what comes up is about me, at least for a while. Um, there are different videos of talks that I've done that are on the web. Uh, I've written a number of reports that are posted on the web. Um, we have websites for our research projects here at Harvard, and those have links to articles, research articles, and, and more public-oriented articles about the work. And then in the last um, four years, counting Next year, when the 60-year curriculum comes out, I've uh, co-edited four books on immersive learning, on learning engineering, on the 60-year curriculum, and on uh, professional learning in the digital age. So those are all different kinds of resources. And I just really appreciate the chance to interact with you and to share these ideas and to get other people excited about the challenges and the opportunities of the next 50, 60 years. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. And uh, it is an exciting time for learning. Thank you. That concludes the conversation with Dr. Chris Didi. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 223. And the show notes will include the reflection questions, which again are what threats does the 60-year curriculum pose to your learning business? And what opportunities does the 60-year curriculum open up for your learning business? When you check out the show notes, you will see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing.
We'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple, and that'll put you in the right place. So Lisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, and those reviews and ratings really help the podcast to show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leadinglearning on any of those channels. However you do it, wherever you do it, please follow us and please help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Yeah.